So, with that out of the way, let us go ahead and jump into our teaching for this morning. And so, we're going through a series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And in this series, what, what I'm trying to do is trying to figure out how can we as Christians start to live in the world in such a way where we take seriously the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer where Jesus says for us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can we live as Christians in our world today in such a way where we take that part seriously, that whenever we pray to God that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom would be established and even spread on this earth, and, 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 uh, and it would transform this world uh, uh, you know, as he reigns in heaven. What if we started to see that and take it seriously? Uh, in what way would we start to see our world differently? And then how would we start addressing the problems and the issues and the darkness that we see in our world? So that's been the project for this series, and we are continuing in that project today by talking about justice. We began last week with um, beginning to lay the foundation for a definition and understanding of what is justice according to Scripture. And the, if we're going to see the world through a biblical lens, right, if we're going to understand the world according to Scripture, what is justice? So we started to lay that foundation last week, and we're going to continue in that today. So I'm going to start this morning by reading from Romans chapter 13. If you want to uh, turn in your Bible there to Romans 13 so you can follow along, you can go ahead and do that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or you are having a hard time finding it, don't worry, because we'll have the words up on the screens next to me, so you can follow along there. This morning, we're going to start out in Romans chapter 13. Similar to last week, we're going to be moving around in a few different places. <clears throat> I'll have all the scriptures for you, um, but at least to start today in kind of what is our central passage, we're going to be in Romans 13. So I'll give you just another minute if you want to turn there, and then we'll get started. Okay. Well, if we're all ready, it seems like everybody's waiting in anticipation, then we'll get started. <laughs> so, in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 7, it says, Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Toes to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And so we're jumping into this today, like I said, continuing to try to understand uh, and answer this question, what is biblical justice? And as we do so, what I want to do today is, is try to help us to understand um, that the starting point from which that we begin to talk about justice and understand justice makes all the difference in, uh, in how we will go about pursuing justice. We, 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 start, we started dipping our toes into this last week, but now we're getting a little bit deeper. Forty years ago, there was a book published by one of, one of my all-time favorite authors. If you've been a Redeemer for a while, you've heard his name before. Forty years ago, there was a book published by Francis Schaeffer called A Christian Manifesto. Really short book, less than 100, well, about 100 pages. 
in my opinion, it should be considered essential or required reading for Christians in 2021. Incredible book. And in this book, he talks about how there are two worldviews which are uh, in a clash and are at war with one another in our society today. And these are the Christian worldview, which was previously the worldview that our society had a consensus upon. Most people were either uh, personally believers, or even if they were not uh, practicing Christians, they still somewhat subscribe to the Christian worldview. And so there's the Christian worldview in our society, but then there is the humanist worldview, as Schaefer would say, or the humanistic worldview. This is a worldview which basically summed up means that there is no God, or if there is a God, he is so distant and unknowable that you know he doesn't really matter and he doesn't really care what we do here on this earth. And so therefore, what happens on this earth is all according to man and whatever man thinks. Schaefer calls humanism as uh, man is the measure of all things. So it's an essentially atheistic or agnostic worldview. And he says that these two worldviews are in clash in our culture today. And he says this about these worldviews. He says, It is not that these two worldviews are different only in how they understand the nature of reality and existence. Right? Christianity and humanism would say very different things about what is reality. He says they also inevitably produce totally different results. The operative word here is inevitably. It is not just that they happen to bring forth different results, but it is absolutely inevitable that they will bring forth different results. And it is with this understanding that the worldview with which we operate out of, the worldview with which we use whenever we talk about pursuing justice or whenever we talk about um, uh, any other thing when it comes to ordering our society or our families and so on, the worldview with which we use will determine the results that are being produced. In other words, within every uh, worldview, there are the roots of something. There are the roots of something, which is if we continue to water those roots by pursuing that worldview's definition of justice and so on, those roots will produce a certain kind of fruit. And that fruit will be determined by which roots we are using in our definitions and pursuits of justice and of facing any other problem in our society today. And so it is on those roots that we're focusing on today. So we're going to talk about, number one, the roots of biblical justice. What is the foundation? What is it that uh, will inevitably come out of a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview understanding of justice? We're going to look at the roots of biblical justice. Then we're going to look at the poisonous roots of what is, the, uh, what is the great opponent or rival to biblical justice today, social justice. And then finally, we'll be talking about our only hope for unity and diversity. So let's begin by talking about the roots of biblical justice. Let's think about this. Is it possible for love and justice to coexist together, right? Is it possible for both love and for justice um, for both uh, compassion and for a passion uh, for law and order, if you might say. Is it possible for these things to coexist together? According to Paul, he says, yes. Not only do they coexist together, but they are, uh, they, you, you cannot separate the two. So according to Paul, he says, yes, love and justice cannot just coexist, but they are absolutely a part of one another. You see, last week we learned this. We learned, as we started to build our definition of biblical justice, we learned that uh, justice, according to Scripture, means to give each person their due as God's law defines it. 
Justice is giving every person their due as God's law defines it. And God's law, as we said, is the expression or it is the revealing of his righteous character. And so justice and righteousness are uh, two ideas which are really one and the same. They always go together because if we're going to understand justice from a biblical worldview, then we will understand that justice is just the practical application. It, It is the outworking of God's righteous character. They go together. They're inseparable. And so whenever we live out justice in our lives, what that means is is that we are giving to each person their due as God's righteous character defines it in his law. And so whenever we think about, okay, so giving each person their due, this can mean, you know, a lot of different things because there is economic justice. And so that means what is just in business and economic dealings? And uh, what does it mean to give each person their due in, in business and commerce and, uh, and entrepreneurship and so on? And then there is uh, giving each person their due whenever it comes to uh, retributive or, or, you know, criminal justice. Whenever there is someone who owes a debt to society because they, uh, they broke a criminal law in, in theft or uh, violence or whatever else, giving that person their due for the sake of those who were, who were hurt by their actions. But then there's also justice in terms of um, helping the poor and relieving those who are oppressed and so on. So in all these different ways of understanding justice, how can love be a part of that, Right? How is it that, that love and justice can really go together? Because in our minds, I think, especially as modern people, um, we typically separate those two things, right? That's why whenever we talk about uh, marriage, and you know, a lot of you guys, you're either you're engaged or you just got married or whatever else. When we talk about marriage and young uh, engaged couples are dreaming together and imagining, you know, the wedding day and the honeymoon and the and their future home, and the children, and all these things, and their, their tummies are just full of butterflies, and it's wonderful, and beautiful, and sweet. You know, really often, they don't talk about, and signing the marriage license, right? That, that contract that comes into it, that, that law side of it that comes into the marriage, that's usually not one of the most romantic parts of uh, the whole enterprise of marriage, is it? You know, that's usually like uh, something we just got to get out of the way. It's, it's, it's like the least sexy part of marriage. We just got to do it, get it over with, right? But, but it's there because we, we separate in our minds uh, love and law very much. But Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. Here's our first major point in, as I'm going to explain this. Biblical justice is rooted in the loving relationship of the Trinity. The only way that, we're, that we are going to make sense of and understand what Paul means here when he says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Biblical justice is rooted in the loving relationship of the Trinity. So how is it that Paul can say that love and justice absolutely do go together, that that love and justice are as inseparable as are uh, justice and righteousness, and that uh, fulfilling the law, right, like making sure that we are following the Ten Commandments and making sure that we are following all of God's law and his, his revealed will to us is an expression of love. The only way that we're going to understand this is if, once again, we begin with God. 
So just as last week, in beginning to define justice, we begin with God. Because God is the beginning of all things. He is the creator. He is the author. And he is the sovereign Lord over all creation. So it is with him that we must begin. And so similarly here, we begin with God. And if we begin with God, then we will, we will see that whenever we go and we look at God and his character, what we find is that we find a Trinitarian God. In Christianity, our our perception and our view of God is absolutely unique among all world religions and, and any other theory that there's ever been because we believe in a God who is one God in three persons. We call this the Trinity, right? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so whenever we begin with God, we find not just, not just one person, but we find three persons. No, this does not mean three gods. He is one God eternally coexisting in three persons. Three persons which cannot be separated, right, off as, as different entities, right? They all exist as one in one substance, one nature, one equal authority and sovereignty, but as three coexistent persons, okay? I don't have time for us to, to fully dive in into the mystery of the Trinity and, and how God can be one existing in three persons, but let's just look at one of the ways that Jesus describes how this relationship works. It, we, we get one of, those, one of the best and one of the most beautiful insights into the Trinity and, and the working of the Trinity whenever Jesus prays. It's a part of his, his high priestly prayer. It's called his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. In the beginning of John chapter 17, he begins praying to the Father, and he's talking about his hour which is coming. That's speaking of his crucifixion. He's speaking of his hour which is coming whenever uh, he is going to glorify the Father, and the Father is going to glorify him as he goes to his hour and through what he endures in that hour accomplishes salvation and eternal life for all those whom God chooses to save. He talks about this glorification that's going to happen in this moment. But then he ties that glorification that's going to happen whenever he goes to the cross back to before time began. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is, is up until this point, uh, I have been doing nothing but just glorifying you. And I know that you have glorified me. And I'm going to continue glorifying you by obeying you, going to the cross. And whenever I do, I know that you will continue to love and glorify me as well. And then he says, just as we have since the beginning. You see, listen to this. In, in verse 4 of John chapter 17, Jesus talks about how I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. In verse 24, he goes on to say, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. So here's the insight that Jesus gives us into the Trinity, which is that before the world even existed, before there was uh, earth and the heavens and before there was people on the earth and everything else, there was the Trinity. There was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this, this Trinity existed in a perfect existence of mutual love and glorification of one another. That's what Jesus is saying here. Before the world even existed, he was receiving love from the Father, and he was loving the Father, and the Spirit was loving Father and Son as they were loving one another, and, and Jesus, as the Son, was glorifying the Father, and the Father was glorifying the Son, and the Spirit was glorifying Father and Son. One of the ways that 
the New Testament, when it talks about this relationship between the Trinity, it uses a Greek word, I can't remember the word right now, but it uses a, a word which uh, signifies something like a dance. We get this image in the New Testament that in eternity past, before the world ever existed, that God existed in this eternal dance of, of beauty, harmony, of love, and glorifying of one another. Now, if God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are loving one another and glorifying one another before the world existed, what does that say about the nature of their actions? What does God deserve? In other words, what is God's due? He calls us to it all over Scripture, especially if you read the Psalms. God calls for his due from humanity, from, his, from us all the time, where he demands worship whenever he demands adoration, whenever God jealously claims all glory for himself. So if what is God's due is glory, is love, and is adoration, whenever God the Father was loving and glorifying the Son in eternity past, what was he doing? He was giving the Son his due. He was giving him justice. And as the Son was loving and glorifying the Father, he was acting justly and, uh, and giving the Father his justice as he was giving him what he was due, what was owed to him, and the Holy Spirit likewise, and so on. And so, once again, to tie this all together, in time, eternity past, according to Scripture, the Trinitarian God was existing in this, this, this um, community of perfect covenantal love and of justice towards one another as they were giving each other their due in their divine dance of love and, glorify, and, and glorification of one another. And so what does this mean about our God? It means that our God is truly a personal God. He has a personality, and we can see this personality even before there was any other, before there was human beings, before there was creation. We can see that this personality was true of him in the Trinity, as we see the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if there is a community between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then that means that God, in his nature, is relational. If God existed by himself before creation, if the Christian God was monistic, that means not Trinitarian, not one God existing in three persons, but just one God, one person. If God was monistic before the creation of the world, we cannot say that he was relational. We cannot say that relationship and community is essential to his nature because he exists by himself, right? Relationship cannot be essential to somebody's nature, cannot be practiced, especially if they exist by themselves. And on top of this, we can say that he is essentially a loving God. Once again, if God was monistic and existed by himself in eternity past before creation, how can we say that love is truly a part of and, 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 and a part of the essence of who he is? John in his letter said, God is love. Now, how can we know that that was actually true if God did not have an object to place his love upon before he created the world? He did not create the world in humanity because he needed to prove his love. His love was already being expressed fully, infinitely being expressed between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what this, this shows us. This shows us that only the... Uh, only the Christian 
Trinitarian God can provide us with a basis for both love and justice to go together. Because we see that it is essential to his nature and to his character as a personal, relational, loving God. It is essential to his nature in person that love and justice are going together. Because this was the activity of the divine dance in the Trinity in, in eternity past. And it's what they were doing uh, whenever Jesus was on earth and he was uh, obeying the Father. And it's what they are doing even now. Love and justice are brought together in our God. And it is only our God, our Christian Trinitarian God, that can provide us a foundation for both love and justice. As I said before, the Trinitarian God is absolutely unique among all world religions. You see, in the predominant Eastern religions of of Buddhism and Hinduism, God is not personal. God is only transcendent. So especially in Buddhism, uh, everything is a part of what is considered God, or everything is a part of what is considered the divine. The divine is not a person. Ultimate reality does not have a character, a personality, and is not relational, uh, but it's just a, you can think of it like a divine force. And that divine force is a part of everything. And so, in a sense, the earth and the heavens and even we as human beings are all a part of this divine force. But if ultimate reality, if God is just a divine force with no personality, no relationship, and so on, then what can we say about love? Can we find a a true foundation for love, for understanding what love is, for community? You see, a worldview which says that God is impersonal and only transcendent cannot account for the human capacity for relationships. It can't explain to us uh, why humanity is, is relational. You see this in Buddhism and, and in Hinduism, they, they essentially believe the same thing, but it's personified with some different names of Brahma and the other gods and so on. But still, these are just personifications of that divine force. Moving over a little bit, you get into the Islamic religion. And in Islam, which is a, is a monotheistic religion, so they don't believe that, um, that the ultimate reality or that God is an impersonal, just divine force that is a part of everything, but that God is separate from his creation. However, they believe that God is so separate from his creation and so distant that he is mostly unknowable. Not much can be said about the personality or the character or the will of Allah. Even in uh, Muslim religion, Allah's will and his personality is mostly unknown. So once again, we cannot say that love and justice is essential to Allah's personality because he is so distant as to be something that we can't really, we can't know very well. But more than this, since they believe that Allah is monistic, is one existing by himself, far apart from the creation, we cannot say that he is relational. Though he has a personality, does he have a a relational personality, a loving personality, something that is a part of his essence, as we can say about the Christian Trinitarian God. God, and as Jesus talks about in, in, their, in the Trinity's uh, divine dance of love and glorification of one another, is the only foundation that we can find in the world for something to hold together both love and justice for us. And because Scripture tells us that we have a, a relational God with personality, 
who created humanity in his image, then what that means is that being made in his image, we are people who are also made with personality. We are people who are made with the capacity for relationships and a desire for community. It means that people being made in the image of this God, that, that to love and to live in a just community is something that is uh, supposed to be a part of our essence and nature as well as we live it out. Being made in his image, we are made for loving relationships in just community. And so here's what this means as we kind of try to pull this together. Pursuing justice means loving your neighbor. Paul said, love is fulfilling the law. We can say that this is true. And we can wholeheartedly pursue justice, giving to every person, whether they be someone in authority, whether they be someone weak, whether they be a peer, or whatever else. Giving every person their due, we can pursue this out of a a conviction of love because of what Scripture says about our God and how he made us to live. And what this means is that all justice is social. Today, we have this tendency to talk about justice and then social justice. But if we understand that justice is always giving to someone their due, whether it be a person or a group of people or so on, if justice is always giving someone their due in, uh, in, in commerce and trade or in criminal law or in charity and help to the poor, then all justice is always social. All justice is inescapably social because we are social beings made by a social God. We are out living justice in our community just as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived out justice in their interpersonal divine community with one another. And so when we go out into the world to pursue social justice, when we go out into the world to pursue a just society and to talk about this is how society ought to order itself according to God's word, we are talking about justice. uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Justice being driven by love. Motivated. Justice motivated by love. Could not think of it for a second. We are talking about and we are sharing justice motivated by love from the only foundation that we can find in our world for a justice motivated by love. And so here's what I want us to see before we move on, just to make it something a little bit more practical and a little bit more closer to home. Whenever we present the Christian alternative to the world for what justice truly is and for what it means, and then whenever we begin to apply it to specific issues, What we are doing is we are trying to present an alternative view of justice to the world, which is both good and loving. We are not coming to the world just with a hammer to say, you're wrong and we're right. (laughs) And so we're going to smash your definitions of justice. We're going to smash your worldview with our right worldview. Now, we come armed with truth, right? We do stand upon a conviction of truth, and we we don't act as though it is just merely a matter of opinion, but that our worldview is objectively true. But we go and we present our worldview as one which is infinitely better because none of the world's definitions can provide for us a foundation of justice, which is both just, truly just, and righteous, and loving. Can anyone else in the world present a a justice which is the outflowing of the character of a good God. Just think about how good our God is. 
Like, has he been good to you in your life? Do you ever just stop and think about how, how merciful and how gracious and how good he has been to you? The blessings that he has poured out upon you, the, all the times that he could have smote you down, that he could have stricken you, that he could have wiped you off the face of the earth, all the times that you really deserved <laughs> that, that smiting and wiping away, but instead he didn't, and he just continues to pour love and heapings of blessings on top of you. You know, as Paul said, our God who is endlessly rich in mercy. I mean, just have you ever stopped and thought about how good our God is and how you have been the uh, endless recipient of nothing but his goodness? Why wouldn't we want to come to the world and say, friends, guys, neighbors, you don't want a justice based off of a God that you cannot know. And you don't want a justice just based off of man's imagination about re- what reality is. And you don't want a justice just based off of what some kind of technocratic elite says is justice at the time. We want a justice that's based off of our good God. Because if, if we can apply a justice which is based off of his good, righteous, and loving character, in order society according to that character, how much better could our world be? We present an alternative view of justice to the world, which is good and loving, because it is based off of our good and loving God. And as I said before, we must distinguish between the worldviews that drive the different uh, definitions and pursuits of justice that we see in our world today. We must divide between the different worldviews. What that means is is, uh, what those uh, definitions of justice say about God. Is there a God? Who is he? What can we know about him? What is man? And what does it mean to live justly in the world? We must discern and divide between these different worldviews because these different worldviews, as Schaefer said, will inevitably produce different results. Once again, the roots of our justice will inevitably produce different fruits. The roots will produce different fruits. And so we must be sure that the conceptions that we hold about justice in our mind as individuals and as a church and whenever we advocate for justice in our world and whenever we seek to give to each person what is their due, that we begin with the right roots. That we make sure that they are the roots of God's righteousness and not poisoned roots. In our world today, if you want to say that there is a there is a great divide and clash between two worldviews and their conceptions of justice in our world today. It is the Christian view and the view that I'll call ideological social justice. Now, I want to divide this by saying ideological social justice so that I can divide this specific worldview that I'm talking about aside from whenever we talk about a truly Christian or truly biblical social justice, because I said before, it's somewhat redundant to say social because all justice is inevitably social. And so I'm talking today about something that I'll call ideological social justice. And just let me say this as well. Don't get too tense. Relax. It's okay. All right. As I'm talking about this ideological social justice, I'm not attacking anyone here. And I'm not saying that if you care about social justice that, that, that uh, you have um, given yourself over to this false worldview. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that maybe in some slight ways, maybe in some ways that we haven't even perceived yet, we have s- implicitly adopted some ideological social justice into our worldview, and we've been giving it Christian terms. Or maybe it would just be helpful to be a little bit more clear in what we mean and, and what we don't mean by ideological social justice, okay? 
And so this is something that is good for us all to all self-examinate. Because just as I've been studying and as I've, I've been learning over the past several weeks, I've been realizing in myself, wow, you know, I was holding a lot of ideas about what justice was and, and categories of, of justice that are foreign to Scripture and that were the roots of a non-Christian justice rather than what God's Word says. So it's okay, all right? We're all learning together. What is ideological Social justice, as I said before. So point two, ideological social justice is the predominant one in our world today, and it is rooted in a humanistic worldview. Like I said before, we are looking at the roots behind justice and what we say about justice. We are looking at the worldviews. Ideological social justice, which is rampant in our society today, is rooted in a humanistic worldview. A humanistic worldview, as I said before, is one which denies either the existence of God or the knowability of God, is one which denies the sovereignty of God and his authority over all of our life, uh, over all of life and all of our lives today, and instead says that whatever man thinks and whatever man chooses for himself is, is, is it. That's all. That we are our own authority. That we are autonomous that we can define for ourselves what is reality and who are we as human beings and what does justice mean for ourselves. That we can, uh, like architects, design what we see as a good social order and what society ought to look like rather than God as the architect over society. This is a humanistic worldview, a humanism worldview. And ideological social justice today, just about just 99% of the time that you hear justice being talked about, whether it is on the news or on social media or among politicians or in various other places, what is being talked about is this view of justice, which is based upon a humanistic worldview. And so because this worldview, because the roots of this view of justice say that there is uh, either no God or, or one that we cannot know, right? He's too far away. He's unknowable. Um, all religions are arguing about who this God is. You know, maybe they're all right, but they're all a little bit wrong in some way. You know, so we, we ultimately can't really know. We will, as autonomous beings, def- will define for ourselves what justice is. So what this means is that ideological social justice, in the place of a God that we can know, will present just human will. In the place of a God that we can know, and in the place of a God who reveals his, his will to us in Scripture that we then submit our lives to and order our lives by, what most people believe in the world today is that, um, that ultimate reality is really just whatever you feel, whatever you decide, right? So most people today, whenever they talk about God, are really talking about something that is made in their own image, something that is really just a reflection of their own will. Because if you do not look to a God who is known and who has communicated himself to us and then submit to the God who makes us in his image, then you will inevitably just create a God who is made in your image. And that God will just happen to hold all the same opinions as you do, right? That God will just happen to... um, agree with all the common sense of culture, with all of the various trends in our society, that God would just happen to go along with all of it and approve of all of it and see all of it as good. You know, whatever the major cultural figures uh, think, that is just what the God of our society will happen to think of as well. Whatever our governmental leaders tells us is just and what is social justice, the God of those leaders will just happen to go along with him as well. Because whenever we do not follow and submit to a God who reveals himself to us, we will make one in our own image. 
And so this is the first thing that we need to see, that without a God, people will make a, without, uh, without God, capital G, people will make a God, lowercase g, that is made up in their own image. And then, based off of this God, which is made in our own image, whenever we begin to think about and talk about, well, then what is just or what is justice, then uh, obviously, right, and what is the logical next step? Whatever we define justice as and whatever we think of it as is then just going to be whatever we think. Or it's going to be whoever those in power say justice is. It's going to be whoever those with the greatest cultural clout and the greatest cultural influence, whatever they say is just and whatever they say is right and whatever they say is loving, well, then that's going to be what becomes the definition. Because who can argue with it? If there is no God who has made one objective standard for us all, and we're all just projecting our different ideas, well, then how can you argue against that? So humanity will begin to make a God in its own image, and that, and as they make a God in its own image, they will then define for themselves what justice is. And that justice, as we begin to define it for ourselves, and as, and as people say, well, you know, this part of our society is, according to what we think, in, in our opinion, is not right. It's unjust. And, and so is this part of society. It is wrong, and there's injustice happening here. What will inevitably happen then is that the so-called will of the people, and whatever the people think is right, and whatever autonomous man thinks is good for society, will inevitably then be delegated to the power of an endlessly growing state. You see, the inevitable result of ideological social justice will always be an attempt to replace theology with politics. To say that since we cannot know anything about God, theology, right, then we are just exercising the will of the people, and the best way to exercise the will of the people is by giving it over to the state. So that through the state's power, and so that through the state's authority, and through all of its various means and, and, and mechanisms and systems, it can then impose the will of the people on society. So then the state can become, in the place of God, the grand architect of social order and the grand arbiter and, and definer of what is justice. It is inescapable. Politics will always begin to uh, replace theology whenever we reject the God who is there, who has revealed himself to us, and who is sovereign. Have you ever stopped and wondered to yourself, why is it that so much of our society today, that, that everywhere you turn and everything you look, everything is political, right? Is there any part of our society today where, uh, or is there any topic that you can just bring up in small talk with somebody where you might not just step in a big pile of horse, you know, junk? It's hard to, right? Everywhere we go, the, the, there's hardly any topic these days and hardly any subject that we can just bring up in small talk as you're talking to the barista at the coffee shop, waiting on your, your coffee or chit-chatting with your aunts and uncles, cousins, whoever else. It's hard to find any topic today that we can walk, uh, narrowly navigate our way into without censoring ourselves because we're afraid of stepping on a landmine. Why is it that, that everything today is political? It's because politics has replaced our theology. Is because as the state has continued to inevitably grow and expand its endless power with, with, with no checks, with no limits upon it, it will then it, it becomes the hope for society to create a just order upon every area of society. And it will demand that, uh, that 
that every part of society, like I said, every subject that we might try to talk about, bend its knee to its will. What happens then is that ideological social justice is actually anti-social. Ideological social justice ends up being anti-social because it provides for us no solid foundation or basis for relationships and community. It says that we are all just meaningless pieces of this, of this one reality. It denies that we are, we are people made in the image of God, but that we are just uh, accidents, uh, human meatballs who happen to come about in this world through the chance, processes of chance and randomness and so on. And so it cannot provide for us any reason for uh, why we are relational and why we have community or desire community. And it, it cannot provide any foundation for us for why we ought to care about the lives and well-beings of others. And so what always happens then is then ideological social justice will begin to draw lines to try to create solidarity, to try to create community that they cannot find a basis for anywhere else. They'll start to draw lines in society in arbitrary places. Maybe they'll draw lines along gender. And they'll say, you know, so if you're on this side of the line, if you're, if you're a male, then, then there's solidarity in your uh, male group. And if you're female, then you can find solidarity and community in your female group. And there's now antagonism between the two. And all problems of society can be boiled down to the oppression or the warfare between these two. If it's not drawn along the lines of gender, maybe it'll be drawn along the lines of race. And it'll say, if you are a racial minority, then you can find community with others who are racial, uh, uh, racial minorities, and that the problem of the world is, is, is our oppression, right, or whatever else it might be, and so we can then find our common community and purpose in this arbitrary line which has been uh, drawn for us by society. Or if it's not gender or race, then maybe it's class. Uh, an arbitrary line dividing humanity, trying to create both community and then a definition for justice with this line, which, which, who divides, which, which who gets to define why should society be drawn along that line? Why? It's just human imagination. It's the will of the people. It is whatever those who are in control at the moment get to say is the line that's drawn. You see, without a basis, without a foundation, without roots that are found in the relational, loving God who is there and who has revealed himself to us, who has told us that he has made us as human beings in his image, then humanity will begin to start trying to draw lines and make definitions out of its own ideas. And then these ideas will inevitably produce anti-social results, not bringing humanity together, not providing a basis for covenantal love among people who are different from one another, but only warfare, right? Warfare between the genders or warfare between the races or oppression between the classes. Ideological social justice will ironically be antisocial as it cannot provide a basis for relationship and it pits groups against one another, seeking only a bland uniformity and monotony among human society. Why is this all important? Why is it important that we look at the worldview behind justice or the roots behind what people say the social order ought to be? It is so important that we look at the roots and the worldview because it will shape the social order. It will shape what people are trying to pursue. And it will tell us whether or not there is a justice which exists above man-made laws. 
so that whenever men's ideas and imaginations about justice are actually unjust, then we can compare them against the standard of justice which exists above their ideas and say, no, this does not match up, this is wrong. So that whenever there are laws in our society which are unjust, which are immoral, we can ask, is there a standard of justice which exists above what they say, which exists above uh, their laws that we can compare it to and ask, is it just or not? This is why it is so important. Ideological justice says there is not. There is no standard of justice which exists above them. It is whatever is the will of the people in the moment enacted by force through the state. The Christian worldview says no There is a God, and there is his righteous character, and there is his will revealed through his law that exists over any of the ideas of autonomous man and the laws that they enact. Do you know why this is so important? Because whenever oppression comes in a society, an oppression which is due to uh, man's rebellion against God's standard of righteousness, then if there is that standard of righteousness there, it is upon which we can place our hope and it is upon which we make our appeal that men and women change their ideas, submitting them to God's law, and that they change their laws in submission to his standard of justice. It is upon this basis that Martin Luther King and the various other civil rights leaders, the heroes of that era, were able to make their appeal to the world. They did not base it upon just a rival opinion of autonomous man. But Martin Luther King, especially most explicitly, based it upon God's law. Whenever he was locked up in the Birmingham prison, and he wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail, and he was trying to appeal to those who were arguing against him, and he was making his case before them. Do you know what he made his case upon? for arguing why it was that dividing the lines along race and society was a wrong division, an arbitrary line drawn, and that all of the laws which were oppressing towards the black community were unjust, he made his appeal to Scripture. He said, there is a justice which stands above all of mankind's ideas about what is just. And whenever those laws of man and those ideas of man do not line up with what God says is justice, well, then those are unjust. It was upon this solid foundation and upon those biblical roots that he was able to make his argument and appeal, which changed a nation. It was upon the Christian worldview that he was able to make his hope and to have his dream. In his famous I Have a Dream speech on, uh, in Washington, D.C., wherever he was preaching to the crowds there, he, he referenced a passage in Isaiah 40 where it talks about how God will one day bring his perfect justice to this world. He will, he will create this world into the kind of place that he desires for it to be. King referenced this passage. He says, I have a dream that every day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. This is Isaiah 40 he's re- referring to. And the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of God shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. What was the hope? What was the standard? What was it that gave him the fuel and the drive that he needed to go back into the unjust, segregated South? It was not autonomous man's ideas, but it was what God's righteous will had revealed about what is just, what is justice. And it was that hope that gave him the drive that he needed. Once again, why is this so important? 
that we look at the roots because it is upon the roots that we will not only build a just social order, but it is upon these roots that we will address unjust social orders. It was upon these roots and only upon these roots where we will be able to um, address the darkness and the problems in our culture today. We cannot come to any problem, whether it be the, so the, the, the racial divisions that exist in our nation today or divisions among any other groups. It is upon this, this foundation that we have to come and address the, uh, the problems in our society with poverty and, and, and so on. If we go and address these from the basis of any other foundation and especially from ideological social justice, it will produce something which is fundamentally unjust and antisocial. But if we do so as King did from the foundation of God's righteousness, well, then that is something that can produce in us a dream for a world that is ordered among God's will being done on earth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, we ask for your help in understanding these topics which are, are difficult to understand. We need the clarity that comes from your Holy Spirit, Father, to come into our hearts and minds, to come into our souls, Lord, and to help us to see and, and to draw the divisions between what are the ideas and what are the roots that we have that we're holding on to, which come from your word, and Lord, which are those which come from the world. Father, give us the ability, make us the kind of people who have sharp minds, sharp minds to be able to divide between uh, what is a reflection of your righteousness and what is a perversion of justice. What is something that is a, an ordering of society according to your love and goodness, Lord, and something which is not that, something which is an ordering of society according to autonomous man's ideas and something which will just end in more injustice. Father, give us sharp minds to understand these differences but then give us tender hearts made humble by your gospel. Understanding that we are just recipients of your grace, that we did not receive the justice that was due to us, but that instead Christ interposed his own blood. That he received the justice that was due to us. And now because of his work, we get your love. We get your grace and we get your endless goodness poured out upon us. So with sharp minds, with tender hearts, Father, would you send us forth into your culture, into your world, to show the world a better alternative, one which is not based upon uh, arbitrary lines drawn in society, which only produce more divisions, more confusion, more hate and enmity between people, Father, but an alternative view of justice and of what society ought to be, which is based upon your covenantal love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.